Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. All right, welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. How's things going? Going great. Uh, this is a good day for recording. It's pouring rain outside, so... Uh, it's kind of calm. I got the tea in the basement and like the mood lighting. So this is actually works out really well. I do find it sometimes hard, even though I'm excited. Are we usually excited to record? I find it difficult if it's like really sunny and nice outside. I think I start to daydream about going for a bike ride or stuff like that. So if it's shitty outside, I'm, I'm focused. So that's good. <laughs> no, for sure. Is it raining in Chestermere? It is. It is. It was actually, I was going to take my dogs for a walk and then all of a sudden they just start pouring really hard. So, uh, but it's good. We needed to, uh, just the water and so on. Yeah, my grass was toast. So this is actually really good. And I got it all cut today and I finished everything outside then it started to rain. So it actually worked out oh, really perfect. Well. I know it's one of those, it never lines up like that. It's always rains right in the middle of a job. I get washed out. So today is, uh, today I was lucky. Uh, but with that, uh, I think we're, we're going to change things up a little bit on our podcast format. So we're going to start off with um, our news and then we'll end with our uh, EdTech office hours tips and stuff like that. So did you want to kick us off with this uh, article from Bloomberg? Yeah, for sure. So um, it's uh, almost about a month old, uh, but it, the gist of it is it's just talking about how um, Publishers can go and use NFTs, which we've kind of talked about. Uh, I know that uh, Eric uh, just can't get his head wrapped around uh, uh, this whole, uh, you know, uh, blockchain uh, kind of aspects. But uh, basically, the gist of it is that this could help with um, the resale of digital textbooks. And so, in this case, they're talking about Pearson how uh, you can actually go and uh, resell a textbook um, multiple times and being able to go and track that. And uh, uh, it could actually increase uh, the overall ratings uh, or the, the revenue for the company. So basically I could buy a digital book because there's using implementing the blockchain. I understand the blockchain. And then I guess the NFT, because it's, that makes sense because it's, uh, it's like a digital thing. Uh, then you can resell the digital version of that book. Yeah, to, yeah, for sure. And do you have to go now? Do you have to go through? I mean, I didn't. I the reason you're covering this is for our listeners. Is for whatever reason, I cannot see this Bloomberg article, no matter what browser I open it up in. So maybe I'd hit my maximum. Actually, that could be the case. But it, so, do you have to resell it through their platform? Well, they're, they're just looking into this, so they haven't actually gone ahead and done this, but uh, they're speculating that this could be uh, a new technology that Pearson could go and use, and uh, there could be implications for the metaverse and, and so on. So, um, but I mean, I, I think it, it totally makes sense uh, right now. If you look at it, like the, the analogy would be back in the day, we would have a textbook. Once you're done with the course, you would sell it. Uh, and then you could get that at a, at a discounted price uh, with a used version. And so now, uh, right, the current kind of business model for textbook publishers is that either you can go and get access to the digital version, or maybe it's a limited term, like a certain window, 
or maybe you uh, can go and use other third party resources and rent it for a certain period of time. Um, so this could be a, a good way for people to actually keep that circulation out there as opposed to just having that one time, like, you know, short window, maybe six months, 12 month kind of period. Um, so uh, it, it, I th again, I think it makes sense uh, for them to go and kind of look at this. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, I did look at, or I was talking to a colleague uh, down at the University of Lethbridge, and apparently they have a policy, and apparently this is even law, I haven't looked into this, uh, but publishers, and this is part of the educational um, you know, legislation, they're not allowed to go and sell the actual um, uh, use of whatever materials that there might be for grading purposes. Hmm. And so you do have to go and provide that, apparently. Uh, so, it, you know, if let's say somebody had the textbook, and I, I guess the way that they're getting around it is that, uh, you know, they're basically just packaging it together. Uh, but if you had to, if it was for grading purposes, if there's some sort of proprietary system that uh, uh, it could be McGraw-Hill, Pearson, whoever, if they're using it, you're importing that into your uh, LMS system for grading purposes. Apparently, if you decide as a student, you don't want to do that, you can go and contact your professor instructor to contact the publisher rep, and they should be able to give you a code to access those materials. Interesting. So, well, I mean, just, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I would always advise people not to use the uh, assessment materials from textbooks for this very reason. But there are good legitimate reasons for it. Sometimes there's particular textbooks um, that have really good test banks and actually really excellent, um, pedagogically excellent assessment tools. So that makes sense. So if they, sh they should be able to get access to a code somehow. I guess that would make sense too if you have a if you get a used copy of the book and um, the code for the older version should still be good enough to get you the current assessment tool, right? Well, you would hope so, but in, in the event that it doesn't work, uh, this is one thing that apparently you can uh, you know, access. And usually, typically what you're talking about, even for the test banks, uh, Eric, uh, from what I've experienced and all the publishers I've dealt with and all the various textbooks, they usually have a test bank that you can go and uh, download. You can mm -hmm. select the whatever questions that you want. And then even now they've uh, uh, provided the option of exporting to whatever LMS that you're using. And so then you can just go and take that test bank, take that file, upload it into, let's say it's D2L or Moodle or Blackboard and it'll just generate uh, that test pool uh, for you to go and create that uh, quiz. And so again, um, there are great text, test banks. Uh, I mean, I, I have a couple of courses where I go and do that. And it's, uh, it's pretty easy, especially for the theory aspect to test uh, some mm -hmm. of that content. So, um, and it can be a low kind of stake type of uh, assessment as well for your um, course. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, I look forward to seeing how this works for, for digital books. Yeah, for sure. Um, we had another article. Uh, this one, well, this is written by our good friend who doesn't know us, Cal Newport. We love Cal. So we, we tend to feature a lot of what he says. 
Uh, this is not directly related to education, Chris. So, you know, my apologies. I'm going to try to shoehorn it into our podcast because it's interesting to me is basically what it is. But I think it does tie into some degree. And the article is titled TikTok and the Fall of the Social Media Giants. So in essence, Cal kind of goes through the history of Facebook and Twitter and starts to talk about, you know, what were the, the killer features that made those um those platforms successful. So in the, in the case of Facebook, while well, it started off as, you know, kind of elite American higher, higher education. And then, so you could um, sign up if you were invited. So there was an exclusivity aspect. If you signed up uh, and you, you know, someone had like Facebook, Facebook was famous for allowing you to kind of upload your contacts. So you could find other people that you already knew on Facebook. So you'd, you'd be notified if someone signed up for Facebook. And the big thing was, of course, you could put your relationship status because, you know, university students interested in who's single and who's not, right? So it was like almost like a pseudo dating app in that regard. And that's interesting. And then he talks about Twitter and kind of how it took off as being, you know, it's kind of come to become a public square uh, place to have discussions and public arguments, though I, I certainly don't use it for that. And then he, he compares it to things like TikTok. Um, and particularly the TikTok is very different as a social media insofar that it's that those are reels that you, oops, don't want to knock my mic here. Those are reels that you constantly swipe through. Now I don't have TikTok. I, I can see my wife's, so that's good enough. Um, but it's that, that quick, uh, engaging video stream. And as a result, he says that, you know, okay, well, Twitter and Facebook are now trying to incorporate some of that style of video content in order to compete with TikTok. And he, his argument is that that's going to kind of signal the end or might be signaling the end of their dominance as large social media platforms. Um, why I found it interesting is that for, for two reasons, Facebook and Twitter have kind of a community aspect. So in, in reference to education, um, you know, I've seen research groups, research topics, associations um, have their own Facebook page where people can be allowed in, or they have a Twitter account where people can follow them. So they're, they're, it makes sense for an organization to be engaged, uh, or even an academic to be engaged on those to kind of build their own community. I've seen a lot of faculty do this. Uh, to build a research community or for students who follow uh, study guide help and stuff like that. Now, TikTok, I'm not saying it's not valuable and it's not popular, but it's video content, right? It's like reels that you swipe through. So it's good for instruction, but it's interesting to me that he made this argument because I don't see TikTok as being kind of a, a, a platform where there's a lot of back and forth between the poster and the user other than, you know, some of the likes and the comments and stuff like that. And that way it's more like a video version of Instagram. So I'm curious what you think about Cal's new Newport's argument. Does, you know, the fact that these companies are trying to emulate some of that, I see that on YouTube as well, these reels, um, yeah. does that signal the end of their dominance or is it just different? Cause I think TikTok isn't TikTok kind of like vine, which that was bought by Twitter and is now defunct. Yeah, well, I don't know. Did they buy it or did they create it in-house? Well, whatever it might be. I thought but, they bought uh, it. I'm pretty sure they bought it. Yeah, well, in any event, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting because they uh, they poured so much money into that and then 
they just shut it down for whatever reason. But, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting in the fact that Cal is actually talking about uh, social media in general for somebody who doesn't use social media. That's right. <laughs> and, and so I, I kind of even wonder how much is he actually even familiar with the platforms? I mean, just like you, I, I know of TikTok. I haven't, uh, created an account. I, I've seen it with uh, other people that use it. I'm familiar with it. I don't think, you know, in terms of uh, Facebook and um, uh, Twitter, just because they, they're trying to see what other competitors are doing and copying or emulating them doesn't mean that they've lost their dominance. It's uh, mm-hmm. in, from a business standpoint, I think it's, it's probably something that you would want to go and, um, maybe try to squash the the competition out there. I mean, probably another platform that uh, I look at and, um, you know, it's quite often, let's say Kara Swisher, for instance, she always refers to Snapchat being Instagram or Meta's, uh, you know, uh, kind of um, product uh, R&D team. <laughs> they come up with whatever features and then all of a sudden, you know, Instagram will go and uh, incorporate it somehow. Um, and it's it's unfortunate because Snap, it, they they do have some really interesting kind of uh, options with like the augmented reality, um, you know, functionality that they have. And for whatever reason, they just haven't taken off uh, as much as uh, these other ones. But, uh, you know, I, I've seen even online, uh, Eric, and you may have come across some of this, like a lot of people, they're kind of going against uh, how Instagram they're trying to copy all this TikTok uh, kind of aspects, but they don't like it. They want to go back to just how, you know, the reason why they signed up and, and maybe they should stop uh, introducing a lot of these features. So it's uh, overall though, still, I would say from um, e-commerce standpoint, from a business standpoint, probably the most dominant social media platform is Instagram by far. Yeah. And Instagram and, probably- and- and Facebook also because I would they own that yeah. third party marketplace where you can sell stuff. Yeah, well, and and Facebook itself just for running uh, ads, uh, it is pretty effective. But probably it, it depends on the type of business that you're trying to run. But anything visual, let's say uh, you know some type of merchandise, fashion, makeup, uh, Instagram's probably the way to go. Yeah, well, right? TikTok displace it. Well, I, I don't see them unless they go in, you know, their algorithm is by far probably the best algorithm out there in terms of keeping people's eyeballs on the app. Uh, you know, the only closest thing to something like this would have been like YouTube. Yeah, which right? is also very good. Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just interesting, like even just these like short videos and uh, I've seen some um, uh articles or just uh, people coming up with um, ideas of how to go and engage your students. And some people are saying that maybe you should uh, embrace social media as part of um, uh, maybe some type of pedagogical assignment. And maybe students have to go and create a TikTok video to go and satisfy whatever um, learning or what have you. So, I mean, there, there could be some options, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Overall, uh, right now, TikTok is growing and it's interesting uh, there in terms of getting some virality. I don't know how their algorithm works, but 
you know, you don't really have to have followers like how you were talking about. Um, you don't have to have that community or that network. Somehow it just picks it up and uh, you can get a, a whole bunch of views on it. Uh, does that translate into cash? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good it, point. Right. I haven't heard a lot about the revenue. And so as a, you know, as someone who has faculty or students who'd use this for any kind of educational purpose, I still think that YouTube is probably the best for education in terms of posting content, uh, yeah. finding content, finding things to help you with your studies or to post your lectures and stuff like that. I don't see other platforms as being as valuable. It's also not as universal because you have to have an app or you can only view so much before they keep asking you to install it and create an account. So YouTube, yeah. you don't have to log in with a Google account and it's more public, but it was just a food for thought. Cal Newport yeah. doesn't even use social. You're right. So I was kind of surprised that he even wrote this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, again, he has that, uh, the name recognition, and especially being uh, somebody who's focused in on deep work and uh, just being productive, I guess maybe he can go and write about anything. That's true. Uh, we did have a, an interesting, so there was an article that uh, from The Verge um, yeah. that kind of I guess validates some of the things that we put together in our most recent uh, forecast for what's going to happen, which is around uh, privacy becoming more of an issue in education technology. So in the United States, um, uh, this, so this article, I should say, is titled University Can't Scan Students' Rooms uh, During Remote Test Judge Rules. Uh, so th there was a judge in the United States, uh, I believe it was an Ohio judge, uh, ruled that a Cleveland State University's virtual scan, I'm quoting here, of a student's room prior to an online test was unconstitutional. So the, the judge argued that this violated the student's Fourth Amendment rights. So just as a refresher to those folks who aren't up on, um, you know, the American uh, the various rights in their constitution, um, this student, uh, Ogletree, sued the university on the grounds that the practice violated his rights under the Fourth Amendment, which protects U.S. citizens against unreasonable searches and seizures. And the university, in defense, argues that room scans are uh, standard industry-wide practice. By the way, that's always the defense. It's standard practice, as if somehow the standard practice, because it was never challenged, makes it constitutionally valid. It's a terrible argument, but that's what they always, the defendant always says that. And the students frequently uh, acquiesce their use. So because other students haven't complained, therefore it's not a problem. That's basically yeah. the university's counter argument, uh, which is really weak in my opinion, but that's about all that they could say. And so that was, uh, they ruled in, in favor of, of the plaintiff. And this is a big deal. And it doesn't affect Canadian law, though I'm sure there are Canadian lawyers and judges who read what happens in the States. I'm sure that there is some influence, even though we have a different constitution and a different legal system, uh, insofar that you're not supposed to have un, uh, you know, unreasonable search and seizure. We have something similar in Canada. So this is good news because, and just as a reminder for listeners, you know, this really comes up for um, proctoring programs where you're writing an exam or you're doing something online you're not supposed to be, you know, looking at the answers in the web browser through other tabs or having things open. So there's a few ways this is addressed. I don't know which program they're referring to or if they name it in this article, but essentially 
a lot of these programs ask you with a camera, you have to like show the proc, you know, scan your room and they either, I, I, often there's a proctor that this company has hired on the other end. So there's a stranger who's looking at all your stuff in your private space and then making a judgment that, you know, you're not going to be cheating, which is really kind of creepy. We'd kind of be like having someone come to your door and inspect your home before you can write an exam there. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in, the, the, in terms of the legal argument uh, using that uh, unreasonable search and seizure uh, to get out of it. But um, overall, I mean, think about it, Eric, if if somebody really wanted to cheat, they're, they're going to find a way. I mean, imagine, okay, now sure. I've scanned, I've scanned the room or whatever. I could have somebody crawl in on the floor and pull up right next to me, uh, maybe, you know, out of the site in terms of the webcam, maybe they have uh, a keyboard that they're typing the responses, or they have a mouse or whatever. I mean, or maybe it's a wireless keyboard and mouse and you hand it over to them and you're just standing there uh, going ahead looking at the questions. I mean, again, if somebody really wants to, I'm sure they'll find a way. Um, I've even heard of some uh, universities where you have to go and show your student ID card, yeah, match that up against your face and, and, and so on and so forth. And um, I mean, even in a, uh, you know, fully proctored in-person exam, how hard is that to even enforce, right? Like to look at people's IDs. Oh, it's, it's hard. Right. I mean, and how many people actually, if, if you really look at it, how many people actually look like themselves in their ID that you've produced, right? I mean, ultimately, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult. And usually these proctoring systems to me, you know, a proctoring when you go into a university gym and you're writing a final or something, that's essentially proctored because there's somebody yeah. there. And that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You come in, you leave your bag, you take your pencils and you go write the exam and you leave. I don't think there's a problem with that. Yeah. It's more, this was more of an issue because it's a person's personal space. But the reason those have to be proctored, those in person, is usually because the test has a mixed method. It's, there's a bunch of multiple choice. There's maybe some short answer or matching. You know, it really becomes the cheating is more of an issue in terms of the student not having to demonstrate their knowledge that they studied for if it's more if it's one of the more objective testing measures. At least that's my that's my reading of it. Where if you're asking someone to do a take-home essay, well, that's by definition is going to require research. You're, you know, maybe not judging it as hard as a a final essay for a course, because maybe you only have, you know, 24 hours to complete it. So you're not looking for the same polish that you would on a, a large term project. Right. Yeah. But ultimately, like, it's very difficult to cheat your way out of that. You have to write it unless you hire someone to do the research for you. Right. But it, to me, it speaks more of a pedagogical issue. You know, you have yeah. a large course with a lot of sections or a lot of kids so that you can't offer a better critical thinking thing. So you have to go with a more objective test measure. And so I see more and more faculty bending over backwards to stop cheating than actually, like I'm thinking like how much time does it take to stop the cheating versus to build questions that it would be hard to cheat against? I mean, I know that it's not impossible, but. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
it's kind of, a, it's a trade-off, right? It's like, oh, this is a lot of to mark. So we're going to do this. It's more automated, but we have to stop cheating. It's kind of like, well, is the effort put into stopping cheating then as much as some of the extra effort doing some of the marking, right? And then into the, and like, I think there's a balance. Like I, you can't have a, an essay paragraph question for everything. And I, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot to ask from an instructor, especially if they don't have a TA available, but at the same time, it, <laughs> you know, scanning someone's room, it, it's fresh. It's funny too, because in some other cases, you know, that the students, I've read that students haven't necessarily been notified uh, that far ahead of time how this works. So they're past the withdrawal date, they've paid for their courses, and now they have to use a piece of software where they're expected to scan. I think that's more part of the issue, right? Some of these courses in the States haven't been super upfront about the fact that they're gonna be using these down the line in the semester. So someone can't be like, I oh, forget it, I'll take a different class. There's no yeah. way out. Have you ever watched the show Suit? I have, yeah. I mean, I even wonder like the, and this is why like I'm saying even for something that's proctored in person. I mean, in that show, Mike Ross, he was going and writing LSATs for people. Yeah. Right. Like, so <laughs> again, I mean, here you are. Uh, I don't know how they're checking the, the IDs and everything, but uh, he would guarantee you that he'd get a, an awesome mark on the LSAT. Right. And then you could get into law school. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if students do that here. Uh, I try to make my, whatever I have for like, um, you know, examination or what have you like I, I try to go and think worst case type of situations and I I take more of like what you're talking about where you actually have if you are going to do a take-home exam you create it in a way where they have to go and you know put their thoughts together and explain it and uh, you know it's going to be a, a culmination of um, um, all their learning that they've done throughout the semester so from lectures, yeah. from, you know, readings and so on to actually explain whatever uh, question that you ask. And then for multiple choice, again, like uh, I've used it now for the last couple of years, uh, I think multiple choice is great for testing theory. And uh, it is, you know, especially for doing, um, uh, you know, um, certain stuff from like textbook readings or what have you. So, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, at least it validates uh, this whole thing. This, uh, these type of articles, uh, uh, whatever we come up with for our hypotheses for forecasts and trends and what we're thinking, predicting in the future, at least it's, uh, you know, validating some of our thoughts. Yeah. And I think it's going to be more of an issue moving forward. So I think this is just, just the beginning of the, yeah. of some of the issues coming up. Yeah. Um, what else do we have? Oh, did you want to talk about uh, the Coursera Meta? Because you, you're the one who found this. I missed yeah. this. Yeah, no, for sure. So uh, I, I just thought it was interesting because I, uh, I got this uh, email from Coursera and then I look at it and it was talking about Meta. And I uh, originally I thought like maybe it's something to do with like NFTs or the metaverse or whatever. But then when I looked at it closely, uh, it looks like they're basically offering similar to like what Google is doing. They're creating their own, you know, five professional certificates in the field of uh, software engineering. And uh, I mean, they look pretty interesting, like, you know, in terms of going and being able to do app development. So Android, uh, iOS, uh, there's front end, back end, uh, database. Uh, so, 
you know, these are the type of certificates that you can go and get. And I think this also supports kind of like one of our predictions that we've made where all the big tech companies are now getting into the uh, education sector. So, uh, you know, now we have, we had Google originally with uh, creating their kind of Coursera courses where you could get a job with uh, uh, with Google after completing that. Now Meta has done the same. I mean, who knows with next thing you know, Apple, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, they might go and create their own and uh, maybe just displace all the universities altogether. I don't know if it'll displace them right away, but certainly for specialized learning, I, I think, you know, I've always said, you know, we've talked about this a bit before that I, I, the universities, just because they were the kind of the only game in town, the degrees, um, the, the specialization in degrees kind of tend to expand a lot past, say, my parents' generation, where you had, you were more likely to see people with business, general arts, general sciences, and then they would go specialize either in graduate school, that makes perfect sense to me, or they would go specialize through experience or they would take, you know, a certification project management after they worked for a while. So, I mean, specialization is important, but do you specialize right out of the gate with the undergrad is the question. If you're going to go to university or college, that's, that's always been my question where, you know, I've always erred and I, I'm biased because I took this route where I thought, eh, I'm 18 years old. I don't know anything and I don't know exactly where I'm going to end up. So I'm going to do something general. So I studied international relations. Business is another great example because a lot of business students tend to take history and political science and economics and business itself is already multidisciplinary, especially if you're taking general management or something like that. So to me, it's like, yeah, your computer science degree, probably you have to take logic, statistics, you get a really great foundation. You don't need to take, you don't need to specialize in iOS development in university or take a course there. That's, that might take you, you know, three months to get the language down or something like that. There's no need to do that. And it's also not flexible despite all the online learning, the universities still function on a semester course basis. And that just doesn't work for everybody at your own pace. So I think it makes sense for these companies to come out with things that are specialized, especially in the web development frame, because that's where they that's where they tend to hire, right? They're trying to train people they hire. It's interesting you mentioned Microsoft because to me, they were the first because they bought LinkedIn, which owns, yeah. which bought Linda. So Microsoft owns LinkedIn Learning, which is, yeah. I think, the biggest online platform. I mean, I use it through Calgary Public Library um, on a few things. I've been curious to know, like, can you be certified for Apple IT support? I don't really need it, but I'm curious. Well, you have to take an exam online, but the whole prep course is available through LinkedIn Learning. Hmm. And so I, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't make sense to go to a college for, right? So this, uh, this one with Meta though, I have to say, I think this is a bit of an improvement, at least in terms of how they're selling it over the Google certificates. One of the things I like, or one of the things that I find difficult or no, let me retract that. And not difficult, but disappointing was sometimes when you see university programs, they don't really say who this is for and why you should do it very well. Like even in just like a few bullet points. One of the things I liked about this, and I'll just explain it to the audience, is they kind of have a column for each of the certificates, like a graphics, almost like a, um, an infographic 
So they have front-end web development, back-end web development, Android development, iOS development, and database development, basically. And they have three rectangular columns lengthwise. And and each one is the same. It's like if you... So let's take front-end web development. If you think creatively, like building better experiences, and are interested in visual design, that's why you would take it. In three bullets, here's why... Uh, this would be good for you. And then they say the role would be, you know, you work closely with the designers. So that would be the designers, the usability, the user experience people, and you would work with them to build out a vision that's beautiful and functional and works fast. And that actually, as someone who likes front-end web development, is an excellent summary of how that works. That's exactly what those people do. The back-end people they have it a little bit different. It says, if you think logically, if you like to fix things, uh, if you enjoy solving complex problems, then the role is going to be build the technology that enables the user-facing side of the website to exist. So kind of the foundation of the front end. And it goes on and on. iOS, it says, if you like uh, creative challenges, if you like building better experiences, if you prefer Apple products, yeah, I mean... You would want to like their product if you're going to develop an app for it, right? That's like, then you build and write code for mobile apps that are powered by Apple's operating system. So that makes perfect sense. So they've done a really good job of, hey, I want to code. Where should I start? I would tell most people to start with front end, personally. Uh, and there you go. And you're off to the races. And I just think that they've done a really good job of explaining what this is. And like, what personality profile would you have to take this on, right? No, absolutely. I, I agree with you. Just from a communication standpoint, they've made it very simple uh, and they get the point across. Yeah, it doesn't guarantee you a position. It doesn't do that. But it's like, oh, yeah, you're trying to, find, you're trying to unleash, you want to get something, you know, people, like Cal Newport said, people become passionate about what they're good at. It's not like this passion comes like a, through a membrane from another reality and animates us. It's like you have to work at something. I love to play the guitar. I hated it when I started, right? So you have to paint a picture uh, that speaks to someone's personality type about why they'd want to put the effort in to love something and become passionate about it. That's how I think about um, explaining education to people. And I, I know I looked at this when you sent it to me and I thought, wow, like this is... I mean, this is the best um, private online education certificate kind of explanation that I've seen so far, like you said, from a communications background. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, even just on your, um, the note of, you talked about just if you're an 18 year old early in your career, or what have you, in terms of thinking about uh, options. Uh, you know, I think one thing that um, we probably, I don't know, maybe it's a, just a society kind of bias, but just the trades in general, I mean, it's, it's something that uh, if you think about it, like just from uh, high school, you could start going uh, in grade 10, you could start working on getting your red seal hours and mm -hmm. get that practical skills. And those are going to be transferable. And even if you don't want to do it as a, a full on career, maybe it's like, you know, woodworking or whatever it is, it could certainly translate into like a personal life hobby or side business yep. and um, it would also allow you to go and build some other kind of life skills and just uh, even just network wise. And then um, even, you know, one of the things that we talk about right now, where like owning your own home 
it's uh, almost a, a dream for some people. But imagine if you went through that pathway at that early age, at 18, you would be able to qualify for a mortgage. And especially from a compensation standpoint, the, the trades make quite a decent amount of money. Yeah. Right. Yep. But, and you could be your yeah. own boss. You can start your own company. Um, or if you don't want to do that and you just want to learn the skills to be handy, I certainly wouldn't classify myself as being handy for everything, but you know, I, I did my own concrete work the other week and created the forms and mixed the concrete and patched and, you know, I've done all the woodworking. I built structures. I built my own sheds, um, do my own gardening. I have a vegetable gardening. I mean, like that's, that's not from school. That's from growing up in a family where you know, they were really hands-on and did everything, but like, if not everybody has that light bringing that opportunity. Right. So to be able to do that in school, I mean, it saves a ton of money, not having to have to hire somebody for everything. Yeah. yeah even, yeah, even sure. if it's not everything, I mean, yeah, I hired someone to put in my furnace. You hired someone to replace my electrical box in my house. Cause I'm not going to kill myself, but <laughs> you know, if you need to fix shingles on your roof, asphalt shingles are just nailed down. It's not very difficult. You just need some specialized tools. You need to watch a YouTube video or have some experience to learn how to do it. Right. You know, have to make sure how to use a ladder, things like that, but it, it is helpful. We have a, a post from uh, Greg McEwen. So he wrote a book that I recommended, but he wrote this LinkedIn post called the how to avoid the paradox of success. And he has a quote here from Paulo Coelho. I don't know who this is. And it says, when you say yes to others, make sure you are not saying no to yourself. So I'm just going to uh, quote here what he said. And I thought this was a, you sent this to me, Chris, but I thought this was a really great piece of advice. Um, just for faculty who are trying to organize things, we often get roped into projects for students who, you know, want to have a life outside school, things like that. He said, dear essentialists, many intelligent, ambitious people struggle to figure out what their priority is for them at this moment. And for a perfectly good reason, it's a reason I call the paradox of success. And it can be summed up in four predictable phases. Phase one. We have clarity of purpose enabling us to succeed in our endeavor. Phase two, when we succeed, we gain a reputation as a go-to person. I know what that's like. And we are presented with, an in with increased options and opportunities. Phase three, we have increased options and opportunities. It leads to diffused efforts as we get spread thinner and thinner. That's about where I'm at now. Uh, phase four, we become distracted from what would otherwise be our highest level of contribution. The effect of success has been to undermine the clarity that led to success in the first place. Uh, I, uh, you sent this to me and I read it several times and I was like, yep, that's pretty much how I feel. What, how, what did you think about it? Well, I mean, uh, uh... It's funny because uh, after in our last episode, you did the effortless uh, review. And so uh, I actually went and um, listened to essentialism. Did you and like so, it? Yeah, it was good. I mean, it's it's funny. I, we've talked about this offline before, but uh, it seems like all these productivity books, uh, they all have some, you know, uh, kind of recipe. And, and it seems like, I don't know, I would like to go and just cherry pick and, you know, pick and choose certain things. Uh, I don't know if all of them can work for everybody. I mean, we've chatted about like, let's say for instance, like Cal Newport. I don't know if everybody 
has the ability to go and work like three to four hours of uninterrupted time. Well, not, yeah, that's, you're right. Not at least not at the start, yeah. you have to work up to it. Uh, so, so you know, they all have a piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I don't know. I, I think there's, you kind of have to look at your situation, try to figure things out, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, like with essentialism, uh, just certain things like in, uh, I like how you quoted that, um, that quote at the, the top, like just being very selective of what you say yes to. Right. I mean, in, in his book, like one of the things he just said is automatically it should be a no to everything. Uh, unless it, you're basically, it, it would be like a hell yeah, that it's going to be uh, something that's contributing to your overall um, uh, goals that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And I have historically been a yes person, though I'm starting to realize that that's not sustainable. Yeah. And even one of the things that they mentioned, and especially from a work standpoint, it might be difficult. Like, you know, imagine, you know, there's like this a bit of fear for somebody to go and say, imagine your boss asked you to go and do something and you say no. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I, if you go and provide the proper explanation, and that's what uh, he's, um, um, you know, Greg uh, McCowan has uh, said is if you provide the proper explanation that if, if I do this, then I'm not going to be able to do as good of a job on that project that I'm working on, whatever it might be. Uh, which is obviously that is the case when you start splitting your attention and spreading yourself thinner and thinner. But uh, ultimately, this is, a, again, I think it's a bias from a psychological or just societal standpoint. But we think that if we start saying no, that it's actually going to backfire on us. But in fact, the opposite happens because now people, you basically command other people's respect um, for the time and the effort and the, you know, doing high quality work. Right. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I often get, I mean, for me, I've always had, like, we've talked about this, a long-term interest in computers and electronics. I just like, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, wow, I can type this. And then the computer responds back. Like, that's amazing. And, you know, automation was always interesting to me. I don't really care about the coding at the deepest level and that stuff. Just the fact that I can optimize things um, and, or even HTML and CSS, just like the first time I wrote a web page and it just worked even, even loading locally. Wow. Just yeah. incredible. Right. And so it doesn't have to be complicated, but as a result, that's always been, Oh, what's happening in the tech news. Oh, I'd like to, you know, an eagerness to play with stuff and perhaps a fear that I won't break it. I've broken lots of things by the way. So that's why I'm not afraid I've made that mistake, but as a result, I've always been the person for technology advice, which is okay. Um, but over time I've, I've started to be like, no. And they're like, and people will ask me and be like, well, oh, you don't know anything about that. And I'll be like, oh no, I know a great deal about that, but I just don't have the time to do my own projects. If I, if I do this for everybody else, you know, people are hired to do that for a reason. And I think that kind of opens their eyes because they're like, they, they start to see that as, oh yeah, this is actually a skill that has value when, when something's always being offered for free and people always want something for free, uh, they tend to take advantage of it. Yeah. 
And it's funny, you know, you say that, Eric. Um, I've had even in the past colleagues ask me like, you know, some tech related question. They just, they know that I, I'm interested in tech, just like how you are. And, um, you know, they'll ask me something. And then it's like, to me, it's almost like the, what I find is maybe they just rather come to me as opposed to find figuring it out for themselves. And so oh, that sure. question, you know, like a, that was asked, I would just go and Google and find it. Even just this happened to me just yesterday, a, a client asked me about something and I'm like, sure, I could go and do it, but here, why don't you just go and, uh, I, I just quickly did a, a bit of a search and I sent a, a link over and it's like, well, maybe you might want to investigate and see if you want to do it yourself. Right. And then you got to look at the cost benefit uh, in terms of the, uh, the time. Right. Um, and this is where it's, uh, it's interesting as of late, uh, a lot of people have been talking about like this quiet quitting. I don't know if you've seen this like trend. No, I haven't seen this. Yeah. So basically I don't know if it's anything new, but like uh, obviously with the, the pandemic now, you know, two years and it's taken its toll. And so what, what people are doing the, this term, this quiet quitting is that um people are just doing the bare minimum work. That work to rule is typically what that's called, right? Yeah, which, uh, you know, again, I think uh, instead of just thinking, and I don't even know if I like the term, the, this quitting, because they're not quitting, right? It's not like they're quitting their no. job. They're just not going to over and above. And so I think for companies and organizations, it's an opportunity for them to think about some of these aspects and engage their their people and maybe it's just a matter of showing appreciation and again that toll these last two years not everybody is as resilient right and so uh, maybe it's just uh, that's uh, people are got, uh, have gotten burnt out and uh, they just can't go and put in as much energy as they, they used to be able to i agree i think for me it's a little, I think about it slightly, I agree 100%. I don't disagree with anything. I guess what struck me with Greg McEwen or what, you know, that what you sent me kind of solidified what's been rolling around in my mind for a few years, which is that, you know, on many occasions, I've been a go-to person for a handful of things. Uh, and I, and then I'm not the kind of person, and this is probably personality. I'm sure there's people that are like this and I'm not the only one. I just don't like to ask people. I like to see if I can find the answer myself because I enjoy searching for the answer as much as actually doing it. And I search for information and there explains why I am in the profession of librarianship more or less. But that being said, what I've noticed is that I'll become a go-to person. Like you said, maybe because they don't like to look for that. I'll ask someone for help if I'm really stuck. Uh, and I know people who are great at that, but overwhelmingly though, or not overwhelmingly, but more often than I expected, uh, some of those people who would be the people to ask me lots of questions, when I ask them for help, they can't do it. They're too busy. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, I see how this works. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my own fault. So I don't blame people and maybe they are too busy and they're better at saying no. So I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that like maybe I need to take the cue from them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny even like as we're now uh, about to start the new fall semester, uh, sometimes I, I've even come across some just some people uh, saying, and the, these are just like blogs and stuff, but uh, just in terms of um, that first class where we go over the course outline. 
And a lot of times, I mean, we just kind of quickly do it. Uh, and I don't know, maybe there's other ways uh, of going and engaging the, the students. Um, uh, but it, I found over these years, just there's a lot of things that are covered in the course outline and the students, instead of going and looking at those documents or the assignment instructions or whatever, they'll just go and contact the instruction and ask. And um, I don't know, maybe it's just us. Uh, it might be just taking a little bit more time to go through some of these aspects uh, as opposed to going just really quickly over that first class. Or it could just be the fact that they're, you know, the semester starts and uh, not everybody's just kind of going through this flurry uh, and they just yeah. don't pay attention as much. I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think you're on the money there. I think that's a great observation. It's true. And I think there's probably some value. Uh, I mean, this is totally an aside from this, but when you think about going over the course, I mean, I, I remember courses where um, thinking back to my education where the, the, you know, the, her, the first class was really dedicated. There may be a little bit of the introductory content, but a good portion, like half or more of the first class was dedicated to going through how the structure of the course was work, how it was going to work and what was expected. I didn't have to ask nearly as many questions to the instructor through that semester. So it probably save them time in the long run. And I think that there's a hesitancy to do that because there's this, there's this need to fill space with more content. And mm -hmm. I just don't agree with that. I, I, if anything, over the years of teaching, whether it's been credit or whether it's been uh, just library instruction, I've tended to pare back the content to kind of what's more essential. And then I'll work out the details with people one-on-one -on -one or if they have more advanced questions. And that's just worked way better for me. Yeah. You know, filling it with content and just packing it to the brim is just not, I don't think it's pedagogically viable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and it's funny because I think uh, to your point, Eric, like what, what we're doing is, uh, let's say, even if you were like planning a workshop, you probably won't get through all that content. And so, no. I, you know, it's probably a better, it's probably safer to just pare it down, whatever is the absolute that you need to cover. And that gives you more time to ask uh, or uh, for the students or anybody to ask questions. And then you have more of that discussion time. Yeah, exactly. And it's worked, it's easier for me. Uh, I don't have to cut out content. I don't have to rush. I'm not over time, which I really don't like to do. Uh, the questions are better. And so it saved me a lot of time on both ends in the, in the long run. We have to announce the book that was released by Talon. Oh, <laughs> I can't, I'm sorry. I have failed to put this on our rundown. Uh, we've done a bit of simplification folks for our, the way we're planning these episodes to, to get it to, to be more essential. We're trying to follow uh, Greg McEwen's advice, how to make it easier, how to make it more essential. So did you want to talk or explain a little bit about what, what this is with this project? Yeah. So uh, one of our, I forget which episode it was, but uh, maybe uh, I was actually going to talk to you about this, uh, even Eric, because of the release of the book, uh, we may even want to go and re-release that episode. Um, sure. We can uh, do that this mid-month. How, how we yeah. do a mid-month re-release and we'll also put a link to the book itself because it's free online. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, during the pandemic, the University of Calgary, through the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, uh, there was uh, professors there that created uh, what their the acronym is TALON, which stands for Teaching and Learning Online Network. And so they 
consulted and asked uh, a variety of different topics, uh, academics, both here in Calgary and internationally. And during that time, uh, because of the, the wealth of uh, uh, information that was uh, uh, compiled, they decided to go and actually write a book and where all the people uh, involved were uh, able to contribute to this book. And so the book is called Voices from the Digital Classroom. And with this, uh, it's uh, just been released now. Uh, it's going to be available for purchase. You can also, it will include the link, but you can go and uh, view the entire book for free. Uh, and uh, originally, uh, what happened was the the content from the video uh, interviews that we had that was um, kind of modified and maybe condensed or edited somewhat for the the actual chapter and then uh, both Eric and I we would reflect and we included our own piece uh, just reflecting on what we talked about um, and so uh, yeah it was really good experience I guess we're published authors now <laughs> so um, I was actually showing my wife uh, the, uh, the book and uh, she thought it was cool so um, I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add there we have our pictures in there that they took some screenshots uh, uh, from the zoom videos I don't two of my images they look like they're the exact same <laughs> so I don't know it's, it must be an artistic thing it's pretty funny because I uh, yeah they so we did that remotely over zoom and um, what, what's funny about it is that they used our uh, whatever Zoom backgrounds we had on at the time and kind of used that to take, uh, you know, to create screencasts. And they made kind of like, you know, those photo booths where you get the three pictures, you get so many seconds to take it. They, they basically yeah. did that kind of style, right? Anyways, had I known that, I would have chosen a more professional background because, of course, they had pr to, to promote the book in some of the stairways of the uh, University of Calgary's uh, library, the uh, Taylor uh, Library. In the hallways, they had these huge printouts open to advertise the book because people would see them going up the stairs, pretty smart. <laughs> I had a background from uh, uh, what was the most recent Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker. And it was the decrepit, falling apart uh, Emperor's throne room on the Death Star. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's forever ingrained in this print and digital book, which I find incredibly funny. And I have like a t-shirt on, but I guess that kind of encapsulates the pandemic. I mean, I used to have those yeah. backgrounds uh, deliberately in meetings because it was fun. It kind of took the edge off. Uh, but yeah, that, that sure. aside, uh, the book well, is available. Uh, well, I guess we'll put a link to the show notes to the University of Calgary Press and a link to Talon in this episode, so people can check that out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, you're right. Like even I, at that time, like I, I mean, I was wearing a baseball hat. I never thought because the idea was it was never going to be released as a video. It was going to be more just audio um, and stuff, right? And then, uh, and then they decided to go and take the video and uh, from Zoom and uh, I'll put it onto Vimeo and uh, incorporate it on the website and so on. So. Anyways, whatever. It's uh, it was a cool experience, and uh, you know, I know some of the people that are involved in writing the uh, the chapters, and uh, uh, it's just a a really good kind of culmination of uh, everything that 
has transpired over the last two years. And hopefully, uh, again, I, I also like the fact that the University of Calgary Press, they decided to make it open so anybody can go and access it. So, and uh, they were um, even in the letter that they sent us, actually, I have it right here. They mentioned this, um, uh, that the open access education uh, or edition of the book was, is going to be discoverable for through a number of channels, but uh, they actually encouraged a widespread use of this open access edition, especially by researchers, instructors, and students. So um, definitely feel free to take a look and hopefully it'll be uh, uh, helpful for others while they're considering their approach going forward. Yeah, I thought it was a great, a great project. So with that, now we can go into our EdTech office hours and we have some complimentary stuff. I didn't, I didn't want to miss that um, today. So we're going to do this a little bit differently. Uh, I think we're going to do our EdTech office hours at the end of the episode. That's more of a best practice with technology um, podcasts, partly because sometimes the things that we talk about in the news kind of help inform what we're going to say for the tips. I, at least I find that. So tech tips at tech office hours is all one. If you have questions, please uh, either email us or uh, send us a tweet at hashtag using the hashtag EdTech office hours. And of course, EdTech examined has its own Twitter account. So you can DM us and we'll get those notifications. So if you do have a tech question, send it our way and we'll try to address it. Otherwise we have to make this stuff up and it gets more and more difficult. But the question I've had from informally from colleagues or just people that I know, and this comes up a lot in back to school. So during the back to school season, people are often you know, students want to buy a new computer, Apple, Apple's event is coming up soon. So I'm sure we'll cover that and maybe do a, a little bit of an episode, a special episode dive. We typically do the Apple event or, or these tech events. Um, but another question I get is that, hey, I have a really good computer. It's only a couple of years old or a year old. How do I get it to run faster? I'm not going to buy another one. What are some strategies that I can use? So I, I have some general advice. Uh, but I also went and, and looked for the best quality articles for both Windows computers and Macs that I could find that kind of out, out, outlined this. I had some of these um, kind of user guides bookmarked for my own use, but they're pretty out of date at this point. So I found some newer ones, um, one from Computer World, which is an excellent, an excellent magazine, an excellent resource, and another one from Mac World. I think those are the same company, actually. So they did a really good rundown of this. So I'm going to start with Windows. And I'm not going to cover all of these, but there's some things that you, you may want to try. And this is particularly relevant to if you're using Windows 10. Um, Windows 11 has a lot of the same settings, so th this will apply. So if you're trying to speed up a Windows computer, uh, these are the top kind of three or four things I would, I would suggest. The first one is to change your power settings, right? So Windows 10 has this power saver um plan um and it kind of tends to slow down the pc it tends to kind of clock things down tends to turn off the drive if you're not using it um so you can actually change the power settings for power saver high performance or balanced so i don't know how much power or electricity this stuff uses um if it's a desktop you're probably okay but when it comes to a you know a laptop 
you may need that extra performance. And if it's already kind of clocking the computer down, that's a problem. So I typically want everything available to me. So I use high performance and I kind of offset the electricity use by making sure that my computer is shut down at the end of the day. So it's not sucking juice sitting on standby because I think that's a bit of a waste. Uh, the second is that, and I, you know, it's amazing how many people don't know this, to disable programs that run on startup. So if you go into the task manager, so the, the shortcut to get to the task manager on Windows is control shift exit. Uh, you right click on the lower, um, the lower right corner of your screen and you can select task manager uh, and you can go there as well. And it'll give you a list of all of the programs that run in the task manager and they run in the background. And there's nothing wrong with those programs running. But the nice thing about opening the task manager is that you can see which of them automatically start on startup. And so if you have a whole laundry list of programs that are kind of running in the background, even if you only use the application occasionally, that does use a lot of background processing power. And there's a similar thing on the Mac, which I'll talk about. That's probably the number one thing that people don't realize. This is especially uh, an issue if you have uh, OneDrive or Google Drive or even an iCloud drive installed on Windows where it's always looking for things to sync into the background. If you don't use those cloud storages that often, if it's not your main cloud storage and maybe you just kind of back stuff up there, there's no need A, to have a desktop app running and syncing all the time. Those things can um, really gum up your system. One other thing that you can do in Windows, and I don't know other than using Time Machine on the Mac that there's really an equivalent to this, is using the previous restore point. And I have to admit, it's been a few years since I've done this, but you can back up all the data on your computer in you know, all the documents and your documents file and stuff like that. And then you know, back your computer up to a much earlier restore point, maybe closer to when you purchased it. Let's say you bought it, it's a year old, you know set it back six months, and then put some of your data back. And the nice thing about that is that it'll kind of restore the computer to what it looked like at the time that the restore point was created. Um, so that's a really good one. Um, there's some other tips in here. This, is, this, this guide is from Computer World about uh, Ready Boost to speed up disk caching. That's a little bit more advanced. Um, you can shut off the tips and tricks from Windows that actually takes up a lot of uh, memory and background stuff. Uh, it has some other things in here as well, like search indexing. Um, the biggest one though, the last one I wanna end with for Windows anyways, is, is your hard disk and making sure that it's cleaned up. One of the things that's interesting is that most, especially most laptops now, and I guess most desktops too, tend to have a lot more solid state. So we don't have spinning drives anymore. And so in the old days of spinning drives, you had to, Chris remembers this, you had to defrag them on Windows or try to put all the files in order to make it run on it. And you can still run a defrag if you have a spinning drive. But one of the issues is that drives don't run, or, you know, computers could slow down if the disk is full. So if you have like nine, you know, you should, best rule of thumb, as I've been told by people in IT, is to try to leave 15, 10, 15% of the drive empty. If you fill it all the way up, the computer's really bogged down. Uh, it also makes it really tough for it to save temporary files because there's not enough space left over to, to cache things. You start to run into trouble. Uh, it even goes for game consoles. All sorts of things that use drives don't work very well if they're absolutely full. So 
the benefit, the reason I, I bring that up is that if you are in the market for a new computer, it's typically better to, I'm sorry to say it, bite the bullet, buy the best computer you can get, get as much, you know, a RAM as you need. 16 gigs is what I recommend. Eight is not enough. And try to double the drive space from the previous computer that you have. And that usually allows people to kind of keep up. Now on the Macintosh side, you can date my age because I actually say Macintosh. Um, <laughs> I, I still call it that. Tim Cook still calls it that. Um, they're, they're very similar uh, piece of advice, but of course you have to look in different places. So of course, just closing unnecessary apps uh, that you have open in the background. Um, you, Apple has something uh, called the activity monitor, um, which shows all the apps that are currently open. So you can search for activity monitor. It's actually an application you can open. It's usually under kind of the utilities folder, but you could search it in spotlight. Um, and it'll tell you which apps are open and how much memory they're using. So the, I use the activity monitor all the time just to see, you know, what are, what are the, uh, things that are taking the most, uh, space, making sure there's enough free space in your computer. Um, you know, on a Mac, um, you don't need to defrag things in the way that you historically need to do with windows, but, you know, making sure that. Like I said, there's a, there's a large chunk of the hard drive that's free. So the computer can kind of move things around as it needs to be. Um, you can also use the activity monitor on the Mac to free up the Ram, uh, to, to free up, you know, what's, what's being held in memory. So that's really helpful. Uh, keeping the software up to date. That's a really good piece of advice, both on the Mac and on windows, just making sure that you have, even if you can't go install the latest operating system, the latest version of that operating system to make sure that you have all the security updates and because these are constantly optimized. Um, also take a look in the Mac, uh, particularly for iCloud, if that's what you use, uh, to see uh, what is syncing at any given time. You know, how many apps are saving to iCloud? How many things are constantly syncing in the background? Uh, you can remove those computer, those applications if you want. And last but not least, um, similar to Windows at the task manager, there's something called login items. So if you go to the Mac's um, system preferences, and then you go to users and groups, um, you can go to the tab for login items. And that will show you the applications uh, that run in the menu bar along the top right. So to the left of the clock, um, and it'll tell you which of those start up uh, when you start up your Mac. So that those are a few things that you can do to kind of speed up your, your existing computers. Um, but I don't want to take all the wind out of the sails because I think, Chris, you have a, I don't know what you're talking about today, but I suspect it's, you've told me that it's piggybacks off this to some degree or it's related. <laughs> You know, it's good that you brought up some of these points, uh, but, you know, I just, uh, while, while you're taught, mentioning this, I just noticed, for instance, I mean, I have the Office Suite on my uh, Mac installed. And when I first started up my computer today, I noticed there was like a little, um, you know, kind of message bar that came up uh, talking about uh, OneDrive. And um, I'm just thinking, like, I, I don't even use OneDrive. And so, as you were mentioning all this, I actually just deleted the whole OneDrive app 
I mean, it's not necessary on my computer, but I guess, again, like Microsoft just went and took the whole bundle and installed it. And even in that login items, uh, you know, I just found that for whatever reason, Adobe Acrobat logs me in right away, which I don't know why the, what the need for that would be. Although I'm pretty happy with my Mac mini, I haven't had any issues uh, with it kind of getting bogged down for the most part. But yeah, uh, to your point, uh, kind of my tech tip. So I have um, uh, actually my daughter, uh, she's going into grade one. And they've told us that uh, we're going to have to go and use computers and stuff. And I mean, she's still, she's only six. So I don't know if she needs something super high powered or anything. So what I'm doing, I have an uh, old PC. I still have to do that one right now. Uh, And, but what I've done recently, I have my 2013 MacBook Pro Retina 15 inch. And I basically just, took every like instead of going and you know optimizing it i just blew everything apart so i've gone and uh first i took all the files most of them i had them removed anyways but uh the first thing that i did was i deleted the hard drive so deleted the hard drive from there i went and did a restore of the os Uh, for that particular one it's 2013 right so I, i can only go as high as catalina because it's early 2013. And so installed it. I put on the base office, um, you know, applications. So like Word, PowerPoint, Excel. Uh, I would imagine that's probably all that she'll need. On that particular MacBook, I actually had the Adobe suite. And I bet you that was probably bogging it down quite a bit as well. So, uh, and in fact, uh, just Prior to deleting my hard drive, I just thought I'd see if it was going to be a little bit better. Um, and I deleted all those programs and it was already functioning a lot better. But I decided let's just do a quick, you know, fresh install and everything. And uh, by the way, um, you can just go and restore the OS, but it won't delete your hard drive. So you have to delete your hard yeah. drive first and then you got to go and restore the OS. Um, otherwise, it's just going to go and refresh the, the OS files. Um, but yeah, I mean, now the machine, even though how many years is it now? What, nine years old? Yeah. The machine is because it has, a, it had, I mean, it just came standard with an SSD. It's pretty good for all the base stuff that you need uh, done. And then uh, from there, even another thing that I, I just did for the first time, I've never done this before, but uh, uh, just created their first email accounts on iCloud uh, and that'll allow us and created like the family plan. Um, so uh, I can go and manage um, their screen time, any apps that they go and download or what have you. And uh, so we'll have uh, access to that. That's great advice. And we'll probably follow up. I have a, another Mac to wipe. So maybe we can compare notes at a later date. Um the steps for doing a factory reset. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's a little you know, involved. Yeah. And again, I, I think a lot of people, it's, it's funny because I've heard it from so many people. They just think that, Oh, their computer's old, you know, uh, I'll just go, go and buy a new one. And maybe to your point, I mean, it doesn't hurt to go and get like the, a newer machine and get the best for whatever you can afford. But at the same time, you know, all these things are like, I sent you just as a joke, 
that uh, there's, I found a company, I don't know how it came up uh, as an ad, but like they're taking old electronics, like old iPhones and stuff, and just taking it completely apart and putting it on a, um, a matte kind of board, and then you can go and display it in a frame. And, you know, we're getting all this e-waste. And if, again, for most people, depending on what type of things that they're doing, I mean, I wouldn't go and do probably like banking or financial stuff on an older uh, you know, system that, um, where, you know, the company isn't even upgrading the OS anymore, but, uh, for doing emails and all that kind of stuff, uh, maybe just some word processing and spreadsheets, that machine should be pretty decent. And, um, again, the other thing that I would highly recommend is, uh, and, you know, Eric, you mentioned this already, if you do have a spinning drive, just replacing the spinning drive with an SSD, it might cost you like a hundred bucks, but just that alone is going to improve the performance incredibly. Yeah. And that's a fairly common upgrade. I mean, one, one thing that we can put in the show notes that I would recommend people take a look at, and I can tell you a story. So when I was a student, Chris, I had the last polycarbonate, AKA plastic white MacBook. That was the first Mac laptop that I bought. Uh, my windows computer crapped out when I was in the middle of um, working on something in university and I was like, okay, that's it. I've had it with this. And I, that's when I switched platforms, not to say that you shouldn't use a windows device. That was just a breaking point in my life, but it has it had a smaller spinning drive, probably like a 5,400 RPM, which is slow. 7,200 is the standard mm -hmm. for desktop. And um, I was able to go to, after a few years of owning it, I wanted to update the Ram. So I went to a company called iFixit and they have a Canadian site now uh, with the Canadian pricing, but the American one's still good. And I was able to purchase a Ram upgrade. So I was able to double the Ram from two to four because four was the big upgrade at the time. And, and later down the road, um, I took out the spinning drive and I replaced it with an equivalent sized uh, SSD. And it made a huge difference. And it did, you know, over the, yeah, the couple upgrades probably cost me closer to 300. It was probably 150 bucks each time. But then that got me a few years more and then a few years more. And actually, when I went to sell the computer, I sold it for, I don't know, $400. So I totally recouped anything that I put into it and then a little bit of extra because someone was like, wow, this is great. This has been upgraded to a solid state and has more memory, right? And so uh, unfortunately with the Mac stuff, a lot of it, um, with the newer ones, it's hard to get inside. I think you can replace the drive, but not the memory. Um, but with windows computers and particularly, uh, uh, you know, upgrading the Ram, I think on a lot of these computers, some of them are soldered. So check, but I fix it can tell you the difficulty level, uh, what it takes to, you know, to change something out. Um, putting a new battery in, that's another reason people get new laptops in particular, because laptops are so um, popular compared to desktops, all oh, the battery shot. It's like, well, it's actually not that expensive. Even if you don't want to take it to the Apple store, which they will do it even out of warranty, take it to a third party retailer. It's pretty straightforward. Again, 150 bucks and you got a brand new battery. I did that with my old Mac, which is the late 2013 model. So the 13 inch, very similar to yours. And my wife doesn't use her Mac that much anymore. She uses her iPad and then she has a work laptop that they, that they sent her. So She's been using that for, like you said, spreadsheets, doing the budget, browsing the web. I mean, it's actually a great computer and I'm not going to get rid of it because it was such a classic design. But uh, 
those things made a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But again, that's why, like I, I recall even just um, several months ago, uh, a colleague of mine at the UFC just mentioned, yeah, it's like an older Mac or whatever. I'm just going to go and replace it. Uh, I didn't want to get into all these kind of details and stuff, but chances are some of these things like what you're talking about, like with the software, seeing what's taking up that load. Um, if you have your hard drive completely full, I mean, these are just basic things. And if you like right now, especially like I, I'm even going to suggest to um, my wife and daughter, maybe they don't even store any files on that computer. I'll just give them a USB and, uh, you know, or an SD card. Cause in that one you have uh, actually some, you know, it's, it's not bare bones. You can actually go and put a SD card directly. I have that back it. now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyways, uh, but yeah, I think this is, uh, it's good for people just to realize uh, it doesn't take too much. I, I, I wouldn't go to just that default. Hey, uh, if it's not working, I got to get something new. I should address one thing before we close out is that, you know, I've had, I've told people this and they said, yeah, 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 Eric, but you know, you get all sorts of new stuff and you're an enthusiast. So what can you say? Well, on the, on the laptop and desktop side, that is, that's fair. That's true. And part of the reason is, is that Chris and I, well, we tend to use our laptops longer, but we also tend to work them a little harder too. We have a lot running at the same time. You know, Chris has, you know, multiple teaching. You should see his setup. I did, I have video editing on the go, audio editing. So I need quite a bit of horsepower in these computers. Uh, and, and in some ways, uh, you know, time is money, not literally, but it takes a lot. But on, on the other side of things, you know, you and I have often kept devices a lot longer. Someone I know was shocked, shocked that I have an, uh, an, an iPhone from 2017. Yeah. And I just took the battery in to the Apple store and they replaced the eight, yeah, it's an iPhone eight plus and they replaced the battery for $68, including tax. Um, so if I can get five, six years out of a phone, that's amazing. I mean, and you never, that would, that would have been amazing for a computer five years ago. And that's the thing, right? Like it just, you have to keep in mind these uh, tech companies, they're in the business of going and making money. And uh, a lot of times there's even people who are criticizing uh, how uh, Apple is purposely going and kind of uh, limiting the functionality so that people can have to go and get a newer device. Uh, again, it, I, I don't know how much, like, especially for a phone. I mean, Eric, like the, the new iPhones, they're quite expensive. I mean, it's, thousand they're, bucks. They're, they're even more than laptops in some cases, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I, I, I could see, uh, let's say if I was getting an iPhone uh, 13 pro or whatever, it's probably like, I don't know. I haven't checked the prices, but I would guess it's like 1700 bucks, which is the equivalent of getting a new MacBook air. Right. Uh, it's funny how we're somehow we justify it in our minds to go out and spend money on that phone. Maybe because we're using it on a daily basis. Uh, but at what point does it, uh, how much more functionality, just like how you're saying, you know, your camera, it's okay. It's, it's really the, good. It's not the the latest and greatest, but keep in mind these phones that, that we have, even from like five years ago, were probably more powerful than some computers decades ago, right? Yeah. I mean, I, it's just a reminder to people who are going back to school. And I think we'll probably, I mean, I, I'm assuming that we're going to do our back to school 
maybe we'll combine it with the Apple event. We're not, we, we don't, people think that we have this all planned out. We, we don't, we'd have some planning, but it's, we're kind of based on the news cycle. But I think before we recommend new devices for people, this, this back to school year, I think it's important to talk about your device is probably working really well. Uh, there's lots of ways to upgrade it. And there's a lot of resources these days on how to fix it yourself. I mean, buying a part, purchasing a screwdriver, a specialized screwdriver to open it up is not a huge investment. And, you know, it was kind of scary when I first did this. I was always an enthusiast, but I wasn't um, a hardware person. But in, in, previous, in recent years, I've really gotten into opening this stuff up. And it's actually not always that difficult to fix. Yeah, for sure. But that sounds like we're probably at a close. So did you want to tell folks uh, where they can contact you, Chris? Yeah, so if you want to get a hold of me, uh, my website, it's chrishans, K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S dot C-A. Uh, my socials are on there, and you can also email me. And I'm Eric Christensen, uh, and you can find... Uh, everything about me and what I do on my website, uh, Eric Christensen, so E-R-I-K-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-E-N.net. I do maintain a kind of languishing tech blog, techbytes, tech-bytes.net. Uh, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at E.G. Christensen. Awesome. Well, we have uh, lots coming down the pike. Thanks again, Chris. Yeah, thanks. Take care. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamine.com. If you have an edtech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag edtechofficehours. You can find edtechexamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at edtechexamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.